Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerged triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable. Hi, how are you? How's everything going for you on this wonderful Thursday afternoon? I have with me uh, an amazing guest. He is a man who uh, came from the urban streets of Philly. He grew up in a system where gangs ruled every corner and later moved to his grandmother's farm in Georgia where he learned about another system one that is unique to the southern states. I think you all know what I'm talking about. At 17, Alan Maxwell began what would become a 22-year career in the Navy. He was stationed around the globe. He reached the rank of Chief Warrant Officer 3. He later became an aerospace engineer at the Space and Naval Warfare uh, Commander in San Diego. And today, he runs Omni 2 Max, a defense contractor business with over 100 employees in nine states. His latest book, his newest book, The System is Unforgiving, Play by the Rules and Win, is now a bestseller. So please welcome Alan F. Maxwell. Hi. <laughs> welcome to the show. Pretty amazing career. Pretty amazing. I mean, 17 years old, you went to – it was kind of interesting, your dates, because at 17, I went to join the Navy, too. I was oh. in Louisville at the time. I, I just moved from, from Kentucky, and I hated high school there. They wouldn't take me because they wouldn't – I wanted to fly – planes <laughs> anyway they go, no, we don't we don't like girls so oh. interesting that you that you chose the navy though uh first one out you didn't try the army or anything else went straight to the navy uh well actually i actually i went down to enlist in the air force because i was in air force rotc oh, and you were a pilot yeah you had a friend who taught you how to fly I, I learned how to fly right when i was in high school at about 15 16 years old and so one would have thought, and I was an Air Force ROT, so one would have thought the career would have been aviation, flying, all that sort of stuff. As it turned out, I missed the Air Force exam by three points. Oh, no. They told me to come back in six months, but I was so desperate to get out of Georgia. As I walked by the Army and the Marine Corps guy, they both offered me jobs, and I went, no thanks. And then the Navy guy says, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do computers and electronics. And he goes, I have just a place for you. So I joined the Navy. That is so funny because – I walked out of the Air Force. I go, you guys going to let me fly? They go, nope. And the Army goes, you know, come here. And I'm like, who the hell wants to join the Army? Right. <laughs> I said, do you have a cavalry? I'll, I'll ride horses. I don't care. But, yeah, like you, I was kind of desperate to get out of there. But I didn't, I didn't make it. So that's kind of funny. So into computers. And this was like the 70s, wasn't it? This was uh, 1977. Yeah. Yeah. So they were fairly new. Fairly big <laughs> and new. My first computer was a Commodore 64. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. So you were into computers, and I, I, and and I want let's go back to the to the Philly for a minute because urban urban Philly is a little bit rough and tumble. Right. Kind of, right. you had had old streets a little bit, and you had other siblings. You were the youngest, I think. Of your 
And and so were any of your brothers in the gangs? So in Philly, the way it worked was everyone was in the gang. It was it was determined based on your geographic location. It wasn't determined of your personal will. Mm-hmm. So we lived, like for instance, we lived in 24, 21st and West Marlin Street gang territory. And I went to school in 15th and Venango Street gang territory. So just by virtue of where I lived, I was automatically associated with that gang. Right. Whether I was part of it or not. So, so you're over here, you're, you know, we're, we're, we don't like them. So we don't like you. doesn't matter. Whatever. <laughs> so I, I think you had a friend in the other gang territory that you would walk home with sometimes to kind of keep you safe. Is that right? Absolutely. As a matter of <laughs> fact, his name was Alan as well. Alan Henry, who we reconnected about uh, a year ago. Oh, that's great. Years. Yeah. That's fun. Thank goodness to Facebook. Yeah. Well, it's, it's easier for you guys because you don't change your name. <laughs> Oh, that's true. true. Hard to find the girls these days. Yeah. Okay. So we left Philly and your mom, it was your mom that decided to take you back to her hometown, I guess, because she, she realized what was happening. Sure. I mean, with, with five boys in the city, it was pretty rough back then. And uh, the school system was having some problems. Her and my dad were having some problems and she looked at her options and against our judgment or better thoughts, she made a decision. She pulled the trigger and moved the tribe down to Georgia on the farm, which I feel very blessed that we're able to do that because a lot of my cousins didn't have that option. Yeah. Right now today. Yeah. And grandma was a woman to be reckoned with. People knew her. They respected her in the South. So by virtue of her reputation, you kind of got a pass a couple of times. Her name was Alan too. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Your namesake. I am a namesake, actually. It didn't spell the same way. Wow. What I learned is very few women names are Alan in the world. Yeah. I I wonder how that came about. Do you know how that came about? I do not. Interesting. I'm glad that I was her namesake because she was certainly the matriarch of the family. She was certainly the powerhouse. She was certainly the brains. And she was certainly, you know, all the things that I am. Um, Yeah. And even more. But the South isn't really a place you want it to be, and, and I don't blame you. When I, I moved to Kentucky in the 70s, so let's say, I think around 72 or so, coming from Canada, so it was, it was, the, first, um, it was the first day of desegregation. So at my high school, they bust in, and it was a fairly wealthy white neighborhood high school, I didn't even know it. My first day there were two, 3,000 kids, and they're busting all these, these urban black kids in from wherever. Nobody was happy. They were not happy campers. Um, and I'm just like sitting there like, what? What's going on? I don't get it. <laughs> so you know exactly my feelings. That's exactly what happened to me. I had no idea what integration meant, no, no idea what segregation meant. Yeah. It was happening right in 1970. When that yeah. Yeah, so interesting. And and. Yeah, it must have been really strange for you to be down in the South, and, and you didn't want to finish high school, but Mom was wanted you to. Absolutely. I actually quit in the ninth grade, and uh, a cousin from Connecticut encouraged me that if I if I made the choice to quit, that that's what I end up at is a nobody, nothing. A quitter. It wasn't a part of my DNA at that time. I wanted to be something, somebody. So, so you're, you're kind of a thinker. So I can kind of see where you came up with, you know, to sit back and see the pictures. But the idea of the system, when did you identify the system the first well, time? So it was in Georgia. Uh, 
again, when I first got down there working out in the fields, totally was foreign to me and that's hard labor. Mm-hmm. And, and watching the mechanics of that, watching who was selected to do what, uh, really just kind of encouraged me to say, I don't want to be the field hand, I want to be the supervisor, I want to be, and so what does it take to do that? And so I maneuvered my way to become, um, and they call us supervisors, but put me in a different position where I wasn't the guy. Backbreaking labor. Right, in the hot sun all day long. Yeah. So that's when I realized that uh, there was a system in place and I could have, I could have been like the traditional and just uh, went against the hating the different races and all that sort of stuff. Or I could say, hey, listen, we're all in this together. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do the best I can. And when that was recognized, I didn't complain. I didn't make issues. I just said, hey, I'm here to do the best I can. And right. So opportunities were afforded to me. So I think a lot of people may have issue with this, but you say that the system does not. Um, have anything to do with culture, race, creed, color. It's not going to hold you back uh, of any of those things. What would hold you back from the system is not knowing the system. Absolutely. That's 100%. And, and, and what that means is, you know, so many people want to put their emotions involved in decisions and things of that nature, but a lot of times decisions have nothing to do with you. It's, hey, we need, we need someone with this skill set to do X, Y, Z, and either you have it or you don't. It has nothing to do with you personally. It has nothing to do with your makeup. It just says you don't fit the billet. And so I try to uh, not look at things in a personal nature. I look at it in a factual nature and say, okay, I got it. But it's, That's hard. It is very hard to do that. It's hard. It's hard. Especially, you know, like you're in the Navy uh, for those 22 years. And, of course, you know, you, you make friends and, and you know people. And if you were passed over for something – that would be personal. It would feel personal. It would feel personal, right. It might not be personal, but it would feel personal. And, and so now you say, well, I could be a person who holds a grudge, or I could just be a person who just lets that duck like water, water over my back or whatever, and, and carry on. And that's exactly the path that I chose. And so and what I leveraged is that when I saw in the military, for a good example, I'm watching others getting promoted, getting commissioned. And I looked at him, so I know I'm smarter than this guy. I know I'm capable. I know I'm equal. I know I'm just as good. So mm-hmm. why can't I? What is this guy doing and I'm not? So I had to learn what he was doing, and it worked for me. Right. So, so, so you proved that um, – have you ever taught the system to anybody else? Have you ever taught other people to see the system and watch it work other than for yourself? Yes. I, so one guy who's my best friend to this day, he lives down in Corpus Christi, Texas. He and I are like brothers. Uh, when he was a young petty officer like myself, uh, he took a hold of me and he allowed me to mentor him and he followed my footsteps and he ended up uh, leaving the Navy as a lieutenant commander in the Navy uh, with the Bronze Star and he's an outstanding individual and his entire family is outstanding. All his kids are my guy kids. As a matter of fact, we're texting this morning about um, um, football, yeah, fantasy football. So absolutely. He's about the only one that actually listened. I have a couple that took pieces and parts, but he took the whole enchilada. Interesting. So, you, you know, and out of the system came your 15 rules. And one of the rules was, you know, find a mentor. Absolutely. That is so key. That is so key. And how would you choose a mentor? Like if people were, you know, people are listening and they're going, I'd like to have a mentor. Sure. Like who, who should I get to mentor me? So here's the answer that you're probably not looking for. 
the mentor chooses you as opposed to you choosing a mentor. Okay. Yes. And the reason I say that is because we tend to want to just grab somebody for them to fit a slot that we want. That's not how it works. You might identify with someone, but then it's going to be their decision to, to agree to mentor you because they see something in you. And that's how your mentorship really begins. And that's how you get the best out of your mentor. Okay. So you, when you joined the Navy, I, I, was the term ship daddy? Was that what it was? Sea daddy. Sea daddy. Yeah. So you, you, this gentleman decided that he was going to mentor you. He, he said, you know, I don't know, took a look at you and, and said, hmm, here's a boy I'm going to turn into a man or whatever, whatever he was thinking in his head. And, and he did. And he was hard and he was tough sometimes. And he, I'm sure you're grateful for every second he, he poured into you. You could have said no. What made you say yes? Oh, I said no. <laughs> oh, I said no. I said no several times. But he, but he didn't let go. He uh-huh. didn't let go because he saw something in me. So here's the beauty. Probably about uh, four months ago, I got to give him a copy, signed copy of my book. Oh, nice. And, and, and he's a guy that doesn't have a lot of emotions, doesn't show a lot of emotions. And I hadn't seen him in I mean, a bunch of years. And he just looked at me with this big old smile. He hugged me about six or seven times. He shook my hand about 10 times. And he said, I knew that you were going to end up the way you are. And he says, and I've been watching you throughout your life. So, so I knew you'd end up being successful. Wow. To me, that was worth, that was priceless. That was priceless. Yeah, for sure. For so he sure. He took a very vested interest in me. Did he ever say why? Um, about just because he, you know, grew up in very similar uh, conditions and he saw that, that I had a drive that I didn't see and he did everything he could to get me to see that drive. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah, I, I, I attribute everything to him. I thank him over and over and over, a million, million times. He was the angel in my life to, to get me going. So you had a few of those, speaking of angels. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Who was the next one that walked on? Um, so let's see. Um, the biggest one would be the uh, SJA over in Guantanamo Bay. Um, that was a situation that I was in that was absolutely crazy uh, for an organization to conjure up a scheme to try to overthrow you for whatever purpose it was. But again, he saw the wrongdoings and he knew the type of person I was. And he and the entire, entire legal team got behind me to ensure that I didn't get railroaded or my career being destroyed. So I guess, um, just give me one second here. Sure. Because that, that fits one of your rules. Okay. <laughs> uh, don't let the haters distract you. And, right. and, and I guess it's kind of like making friends with the right people. Like you knew how to, let's say, ground yourself with you know, the people who you would need not like you're going, oh, I'm going to need you, so I'm going to be your friend. But you knew who, 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 what, who to put into places that, that would potentially, you know, benefit you in the end. Well, I think, I think the reality is, is that at the time, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be or where I wanted to go, but I knew what I didn't want. And I didn't want, you know, uh, trouble or I didn't want turmoil. And, and in my book, I talk about some of the friends I was around that mm-hmm. all I had to do was pull the trigger and my life would have been completely different than it is today yeah so so that's one of my rules 
is uh, stay close to your circle. So, and what I mean by that is what I learned was one, when you're out there amongst the crowd, that's not good because you get associated with the crowd. Yeah. But if you keep your circle close, one or two, three people most, like my friend Larry and I have another friend Ephraim and John, but these are friends that I've had for over 30 years that I could call on right now today. And the answer is yes, without even hearing the question. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found also that when you have haters around, you, you get away from them quickly. Because when you start spending your energy trying to justify or fit in, that's time that's being wasted from something else that you could be doing positive. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of positive and negative, let, let's wind back 20 years to, to the first wife uh-huh. and discernment. <laughs> <laughs> so there, you, you met this woman. She was beautiful. Um, people, red flags going off, beep, 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 beep everywhere. And people say, oh, I think you're too good for her. No, you know, I don't think you want her as your wife or girlfriend even. Um, you had the blinders on. Young man with the blinders on. Why, what made you want to get married so quickly? Because you were leaving town or what, what was it? So, so here's, here's the real truth behind all of that. At a young age, I had my life planned out. At 17, I was going to leave home, and I was going to find the love of my life. I was going to have the 2.3 kids and a dog. I was going to have the white picket fence, and I was going to live happily ever after. That was my dream. And then I met her, and I thought that that was the answer to my prayers. And I forced the issue because I didn't see all the things that was going on around me because I was so focused on my little dream. So all the red flags, I'm like, no, I'm making an exception. Nope, I'm going to make an exception to this. No, I hear you, but I'm going to change her. And I'm going to make her see what I see. And, well, that was a huge mistake. Well, yeah, you can't change anybody. Eh? can't change anybody, right? And then being in the military, and I did get orders to Bermuda, and I felt, oh, here's Miss Perfect. Now I'm getting orders. I got to marry. So within four months of meeting her, we were married. Another huge mistake. So, if, listen, young guys listening right now, you would say, get to know your get to know your mate. Spend time with them. Yeah. Uh, like with my current wife, I actually got to know her, got to know her family, um, got to go through counseling to understand the likes and dislikes of her family, not so much of her. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's interesting. So, um, wife number one, you know, she went, see you later. Uh, you got to you got to you know Bermuda Bermuda right and. Yes. Um, Things didn't exactly go according to plan. I'm kind of interested, though. You growing up, you know, in urban Philly and then in Georgia, where did the idea come to you? Because you didn't know anybody with a white picket fence and the dog and the two-point kid. Like, where did that idea come from? Did you read a book or TV or what was that? It was a dream. I mean, because, again, the way we lived in Philly, uh, it was a pretty harsh environment. And I never liked that. I just didn't like it. And so Mm -hmm. I always said that someday when I grow up, I want to have something nice. I want right. to have a family that's loving. So it was just a dream that I wanted to fulfill. Yeah, interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, things didn't work out so great um, marriage-wise in Amber, but it did work out because you met your second your second wife there, the the one of your love of your life, really. Um, who you've been with what forty two years now? Uh, it's like been 30, 36, We've been together thirty eight years, married thirty six. Wow. Nine years, 36. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Absolutely. And two and daughters. Today. Yeah. 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 <laughs> awesome. And your girls are how old now? So my oldest is 35. 
who's wow. in the military, and my youngest is 29, who's a lawyer right now. Excellent. Both are doing well. Good, good. And did your wife say a housewife? Oh, absolutely not. No. No, no. She uh, currently works uh, for me now part-time, and she works in the government. So that was part of our arrangement was that the only two times that she didn't work was when our children were born from ages birth to three, when they were able to tell us with their yeah, own something's going, going on. on. Yeah. Right. Then after that, she went back into the workforce. But I wanted her to have a career as well in case something would happen to me. I didn't want her to be dependent on some other person coming in trying right. to control my children. I wanted her to be strong and be on her own. Yeah, nice. Okay, so um, Bermuda was, 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 you know, after Bermuda, you guys went to San Diego, did you? After Bermuda, I actually went straight from Bermuda to the Philippines. Oh, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right, yeah. And where did your wife go? What do you mean, where did she did go? Did she stay in Bermuda or did she go to the Philippines too? Oh, yeah, no, we travel oh. as a tribe. Oh, when you travel as a tribe. Moved. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, the Philippines was interesting. Philippines was very interesting. Um, there's, there was a lot of marriages destroyed over there. There was a lot of interesting things that happened. Uh, but for me, that was actually the catalyst that really turned my career around because I was, put, I was put in place as a very junior petty officer to be responsible for very senior uh, people above me. I had like 17 people that were more senior to me, and I was the leading uh, petty officer. Wow. Mm-hmm. So. And, and, and the Philippines was kind of rife with, like you said, a lot of the relationships went because a lot of sex trade, a lot of drinking, a lot of just was, debauchery, was, if you want to call it that. That was Vegas on steroids is a good way to put it. Okay. But yeah. you got out of there. You got out of there. Got out okay. of there happily married. You know, still Not an alcoholic. Not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> No baggage, no nothing, you know, just a, a good career, actually. So. so you were on the Kincaid. Yes. Not the best of times. Tell us about, um, I think you wrote in the book something about um, it was virtually impossible for a warship to collide or have a, an accident. Absolutely. And, and uh, the way we're trained, the way the redundancy is put in place, and, and the way the organizational operates, um, it, is, it is theoretically impossible for a warship to collide with another one. I, I'm here to tell you that that collision happened the day we departed from San Diego, and the physical act happened four months later, four mm. five months later. It was, a, it was a series of things that didn't happen to that one point where everything that could go wrong did go wrong at one particular time which caused the collision at sea which caused the loss of, of one life and four of my best friends to get sucked out into the uh, Straits of Malacca um, they're very lucky to be here today um, so so when you say that the accident start happened really the day you left is that because of the commanding officer it was totally because of the commanding officer um, so I, I think what happened was whatever, again, whatever system that he was in was trying to promote him very fast. He had a lot of uh, support around him. He didn't have naturally the substance to, I believe, to do the job that he was tasked to do. 
And so I think he was ill-equipped. I think he um, uh, may have been a good person, but I think he was just not ready for the position that they gave him. So a lot of that breakdown started. And what I mean by that, for instance, is uh, at sea, you're supposed to notify him of certain occurrences. Well, some of the major department heads were not notifying him. And he never chastised them for or held them accountable. He allowed it to go on. So all of a sudden, you had little fiefdoms built on the ship, and you had a lot of uh, morale issues on the ship. So, so when you were telling them, dude, like we're going to smash here, where there's a ship going to ram us, they're like, oh, be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. And you were driving the ship. Like That's you were right. driving the ship. And amazingly, but, you did not, you weren't held accountable for that. So, well. Kind of. <laughs> so, so the way it works is that uh, everyone has a responsibility. The officer of the deck, who was the guy that's overall in charge, I was a junior officer of the deck, who was the guy that drives the ship. Uh, he was caught up with the CIC watch officer. All three of us, between the three of us, we had three months experience. I had a month. Each one of them had a month apiece. We were going through the Straits of Malacca, which is the most busiest straits in the world, at 5.18 in the morning. Normally, when you go through something like that, you have a navigation detail set, meaning you have everybody on full alert. Well, we had never set that. We were in a very casual, steaming condition because the navigator miscalculated our entry into the, into the Straits. So once that happened, none of us really realized where we were at. We were on the wrong side of the road. Wow. Yeah, and we were uh, uh, arrived early, so there's a lot of things that transpired. And once again, because the captain had created such an environment, he should have been notified immediately when we realized what was going on, and he never was notified. Why would they decide not to notify him? Um, because of, in fear of getting yelled at or in fear of uh, reprisal. Yeah. Wow. Like, it's a bigger problem later. Well, yeah, well, but again, again, the way, the way it's, again, remember it's four months that's transpired. So if I got away with something once, I can get away with it twice. Now yeah. I'm really relaxed in it. And that's what happened. I mean, it sounded like the way you wrote about it was like, it was like Margaritaville on the ship. Everybody was in their shorts or whatever. Like it was party time. It was like, nobody was in uniform. Were, you, were they? So, so we were in, we had just left the Persian Gulf, pretty stressful. Uh, we were in t-shirts, um, but the main point that I was making in the book is in combat systems, that's, that's the heartbeat of the ship. And at night, we have red lights on, so for your night vision, they had white lights on, which destroy your night vision. Half the crew was still in their bed sleep. Um, the supervisor decided to split the crew. I mean, they made some really obnoxious decisions, and uh, this was allowed. And so had we been and the posture that we should have been in, even had we not been at navigation detail, it would have still been the right complementary people in place to have validated what was going on. But because nobody was in place, again, it was all the things that could go wrong at a particular time. And, I mean, like, you're a warship. You've got ordnance on. You've got, you know, it could have been worse. It could have been a lot worse, absolutely. But it actually hit your your stateroom. <laughs> you said you lost everything because it it hit, it hit where I slept. So the only thing that I had after the collision was what I had on. Wow. It. All my belongings are on the bottom of the ocean somewhere. Everything you bought, everything you... Everything, gone. <laughs> gone, gone, gone. 
that's a very that's a very weird feeling to not be able to go take a shower because yeah. you don't know where to change into. Yeah. Wow. And and the people wouldn't share clothes. They couldn't. Or oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Oh no, no, we we certainly uh, yeah. Yeah. But you got you went to what you what you went into Singapore, did you, or someplace yes. like to to get the ship fatted to go to back to San Diego? So what we did was we limped into Singapore. The back end of the ship was almost sunk, basically. So we limped into Singapore. They put what they call a finger patch on the ship, just enough to hold us to get to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And then we got to the Philippines. We was able to reconstruct quite a bit of the ship and get it back to being seaworthy enough for us to sail across the Pacific back to the United States. So at that point, you were going six months from home? No, that all in all, about 10 months. 10 months. Yes. That's a long time. I missed my my oldest daughter entire fourth year. Oh, wow. She still holds me to that. To this <laughs> <laughs> of course she does. She's a girl. What does she want? What kind of car? <laughs> we'll make it all better. <laughs> I've already did all that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah. That's that's great. Um, so that Guantanamo, what was that like? I mean, you hear all about Guantanamo Bay, but so, I know your your personal experience wasn't that great, but the actual experience not that great there, either. No, there's so there's two schools of thoughts there, Guantanamo Bay on the base. It was either you loved it or you hated it. Um, you hated it because you were in a responsible position, and the the temple never ended. 24-7, seven days a week, you were at the grind. The people that loved it were the people that were in non-responsible positions, so they played baseball, they fished, they did all the nice leisure things that one would do on a tropical island. You know? mm. So I was a major department head, and uh, <clears throat> because my first day there, I seen some things that I shut down, well, caused me to uh, not be the favorite child. The first time you wanted to, get to leave the military was... After the collision, at sea. after the collision, yes. and then they sent you all to see um, a therapist or a psychiatrist or somebody to talk to. A psychiatrist, yeah. Psychiatrist, and that helped. No, it didn't help me. I mean, I, I knew exactly what was going on in my brains. I was done with the military. I didn't trust anybody. I I yeah. recognized that the system there had broke down, and it was a system that was just a mechanical system. So I just didn't see the value anymore. I didn't see, you know, why I wanted to be a part of that. And so this psychiatrist insisted that I get back on the horse and that yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, dude, I get that. Um, but I'm done. I'm glad that his advice worked. Getting back on the bridge, driving the ship again, you know, reinstilling confidence, um, but learning a different level of the system and a different level of trust. Yeah. So uh, new, new lessons, new rules kind of probably came out of that. Um, and then you, after that, I think you went back to school after that. Uh, yes. I, you mean after the Kincaid or after? after the, well, after you got back to San Diego, um, did you not go back to school and decide to try something different? Uh, was, it, was it in the aerospace? No, so I went back to school. So when I joined in, like you, I hated high school and didn't want to do anything with college and that sort of stuff. So I joined the military. But then I started realizing after that collision, again, that I had to get my life together and I needed to get educated. And so I did. I I started, um, I had already achieved my associate's degree in electronic technology. 
So I went, hey, if I'm going to do this and get out, I need to be ready. I need to have a career and I need to have an education. Mm -hmm. So I put my focus on work, uh, going to school at night, um, earning my degree, uh, and earning my master's degree in computer information system. My undergrad nice. degree in business. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. And then, and, and then, you know, I'm going to fast forward. Um, after you left the military, you went to work for the government. Yes. Another system. <laughs> That's a system I know well, too. Uh, I worked for the government for a while. And you talked about 9-11, because 9-11, I was working in cabinet office in, 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 the, in the Ontario, Toronto. And uh, I bucked that system. Hmm. That was a system I, I was able to buy because I, I had come in as an entrepreneur. They, somehow they found me. I was a kickboxing promoter and they go, Hey, come and do our stuff. I'm like, okay. So I said, you know, I, I, I found that I didn't want to be clock watched. I didn't want to, you know, tell me when the deliverable is ready or needed by and I'll be there and I'll have it done. But I'm not going to sit in your office all day. Like that's not who I am. And it worked for me. Somehow I got away with it, but nobody else got away with that. So we have some very similar characterizations. <laughs> very similar. Because that's exactly my my uh, mantra for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. So the government the government was good though. I mean, it's good in, in in a lot of ways. You make money, and you know you you make policies, which is kind of fun. Um, you wanted to, you were in policies, weren't you? You wanted to do policy? So I started out operational, and, and I really enjoyed being operational. I did some amazing things. I uh, brought all the services together to one common thought process, one common way to go forward, which I'm very proud of. Um, and so in order to get my 15, I had to move over into the policy and guidance side of the business. And that's when it just drove me absolutely nuts because to sit behind a desk, not being in control of your dollars, um, uh, inserting yourself into into areas that no one wants you into um, and writing policies that everyone fought against just made it uh, ridiculous. And then the crew that I was around um, were very um, complacent is the best word I can say. And so well, yeah. Oh, that was the other part that I, I had to laugh at you, uh, when you when you wrote about that because there are two two two. Two systems. Oh, what happened to my video? Two systems in in government. Those that that work really really hard, yep. uh, public servants, and those that it's just a life for position, and I don't have to do anything. And so when, mm -hmm. yeah, and when you come up against those those folks, it's like, uh, oh my god, like you just don't know what to do with them. So you ran in, you ran into that that we meant, you know, you're solving problems. You're not supposed to solve problems here. You're supposed to just sit and, and right. you know, get your paycheck. Come on, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> and you know what that's all about. And that, and, and I figured that out was yeah. that when you, when you're stepping outside of your rice bowl, guess what you're doing? You're stepping into someone else's rice bowl. Yeah. And people are very protected. And especially if they're a sleeper, now all of a sudden you just expose them. Yeah. So that was a challenge that I ran into. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I like I was fighting City Hall. And and you started your own company. Woohoo. I did. Omni two Max. So so you know, you've got this amazing company and you're doing defense work. Um and what does that consist of? Oh wow, so we're doing some really, really cool stuff. Um so again, out of frustration, I said, Hey, I think I could serve the government better 
if I was a contractor and supported you versus being in the government, you know. Plus, you make more money. Contractors <laughs> make more money. And that too. <laughs> and that too. <laughs> but um, um, I lost my train of thought there. Really um, you could support the government better by by being a contractor. Yes, and so um, so we started doing some amazing things. I took my background and said, okay, I could found the company off of what I do, logistics, program management, um, engineering, systems engineering. And so we started off that way and we got our first contract um, in Washington, DC um, at the treasury department doing printer, copier, repair. And I had no idea anything about copiers or repairs, but I knew how to manage and was able to leverage that into engineering, logistics and all that. And so we did it well. We did it well and we built past performance off of that first contract. Our next big contract was doing some um, uh, aerospace engineering out of Tinker Air Force Base and structural engineering. And again, we did extremely well with that and the rest is history. We, we started building a reputation and of course you had the haters out there saying, hey Alan, we'll give you five years and you'll be back looking for a job. Well, we whizzed by the five year mark on fire um, and then once we passed that mark, people really saw that the company was real and the company was solid and that we were an outstanding company. So today we're doing forensics analysis for NCIS. Wow. Yes. We're doing a lot of cybersecurity for around the globe, actually, uh, different entities. Uh, we're doing program management. We just got awarded a contract. Matter of fact, today is the first day of the start of a contract um, for um, doing major um, ship stores and different logistics type things, a huge contract um, that we just received. Well, congratulations. So, yeah, we've built a great reputation. Here's the beauty. We've never had to go out and do a whole lot of marketing because people have come to us asking us to be on their teams. Or yeah. Teams. So. Well, and, and that, you know, I think that goes to reputation from all the way through, right? It's reputation yeah. and people... Um, that's always been my motto. I don't let anybody hurt my reputation because it's everything. Right. It's everything. You got to protect right. it. That's so right. you, I, before I, I just go back over your, we get to some of those rules. Um, Cause I do want to get to some of them. One, one of my um, loves of my life, I guess you would say is social impact. And so I love that, that you volunteer as a CFO uh, for a nonprofit and you mentor students and um, ensuring that they graduate from college. And I think that's, that's pretty great. Uh, also, you know, I don't know a lot about Masons, but you are pretty high up in the Masons. So what is that exactly? The secret organization? Oh, it's not a secret organization. <laughs> <laughs> secret. You know, I, I like to tell people that, uh, so if you've never been in the military, right? If someone's never been in the military and you try to explain to them about the military, they don't get it because they don't, they, they have no idea of what it's like to stand watch on a mid-watch. Yeah. Well, they have no idea what it's like. So the same thing with masonry. Um, I could sit and tell you all about it. It's, you can go on the web and pull off books. Sure. Like that. But again, it's a, it's a fraternal order. It's all about God, family, and country. Um, and it's all about um, being a man among men. It's all about taking care of your family and ensuring that other falling brothers, if their family's in need, that you go out and reach up and lift them up and be the support system for them in a safe harmless environment so that's and so perfect. can anybody join or are you asked to join so typically you're asked to join you know they, because and then 
sorry. They want to get the best of breed. They don't just want to get anybody. Someone that understands responsibility, someone that understands family, someone that understands a, a model. Isn't system. there a daughter's one or something or, or why something of the for the women? Absolutely. What is that? Right. You so you have the Eastern Star, which That's is it. The, right, the compar the, the sister to the Masons. Mm -hmm. Is your wife in that? My wife didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so only because she had a bad experience. Her dad was an elk. And her oh, mom, was he? Yeah, and her mom just beat it in her head that elks were bad and all those social organizations like that were bad. And yeah. It was funny when she first met me, my, her mother said, Don't trust him. He's a mason. So, <laughs> how she loves me. She, she, yeah. So. Of course she does. So, I mean, the, the, you, you have this um, drive. It's not, you know, I'm an author four times and, and working on my fifth. And so I know what it is like to write a book. And you had a drive to write this book around systems and, and, your, and the rules that you came up with. Um, and I'm, I guess you're hoping that young people, maybe older people, I don't know, but at least young people can, can have a look at this and say, okay, so instead of complaining that, you know, I'm young and I'm black or, or that people don't like me or that, um, you know, I'm white and all the, all the races get all the jobs now. You're like, no, no, no. There's a system. Watch the system. Work the system. Don't get bogged down in all that garbage. Exactly. Figure it out. This is how it works. Exactly. And it does work. It does work. I talked to a young man yesterday that blew my mind. Um, I met him through a, a gentleman and he wanted to come. He read my book. He says, I want to meet you personally. Real quick, this young man, life went to the toilet, family, house. He lost everything. He was homeless, living on the streets. But because of perseverance, he ended up getting his education. Today, he's earning $90,000, working in a comfortable job, still not completely out of his drought. You know, he's, he's um, uh, living in a, in a, you know, living a room, a room versus a house again. But he's well on his way to recovery. And I just looked at him yesterday. I wanted to hug him and just say, how did you do it? And he says, again, when I read your book, he said, it just validated everything that I did and everything that I went through. And that's understanding, you know, life and social and society and all these different things. So we have to not let society put labels on us and say, well, if you failed at something, you're no good. That's not true. You know? Right. You have to, you know, not let that be to, that that failure can't define who you really are. I can't, is it Jim Rowan? It's a failure is not your undertaker. It's your teacher. Exactly right. I, I agree 100% with that. You have to fail yeah. to succeed. You really yeah. do. Yeah, I agree with that too. Um, let's tell everybody again the name of your book and where they can get it and what your website, if you want. <laughs> Absolutely. The book is The System is Unforgiving, Play by the Rules and Win. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. The website is alanmaxwellauthor.com. There we go. Awesome. And people can reach out and you respond. Absolutely. How about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. That's, that's fantastic. John, that's, you know, you did a really, really incredible job of writing that book. It's, it makes a lot of sense. And I want just to congratulate you on all of your accomplishments. You're amazing, really. Um, so well done. Let's say goodbye to Facebook. We're going to say goodbye, Facebook people. Bye. Thank you very much. Right. And I'm going to stop this stream.